You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Tim Dixon. Tim, thank you for joining us for this conversation. On paper, in modern Australia, you and I should be at loggerheads because you've been involved with one side of politics, I've been involved with the other. In fact, we're both passionately committed to liberal participatory democracy and a civilised debate by which we negotiate our way forward. Uh, tell us a little about yourself. You grew up in Sydney, you were educated here, always been interested in ideas and understanding people. So you left school, where did you go? Uh, I think I always had a very strong um, element of curiosity. So my first choice was to not make a choice about career. I got economics degree, law degree, and I was interested in both. But then I ended up starting an education business while I was still in my university days. So my 20s, I actually spent running an education business. I, I went off practice in law for a few years with uh, Baker McKenzie, big global law firm, in the middle of the dot-com boom, which was a great time to sort of think through the role of business and technology. Uh, but I also, I had a very strong interest in public contribution, public participation, and uh, I had my economics background, so I had a kind of a, a discipline there. And I went into politics then for six years, from 2004 to 2010. Um, and uh, worked for two prime ministers, went through three elections. I sort of won one, lost one, and the other one was a draw. Um, and then in uh, 2010, I went to New York uh, and then to, to London. And my work in the last few years has been starting social mission organisations, uh, seven of which I've started on a range of different issues. Uh, but the one that I'm working on now, I think in many ways, is my deepest passion, which is I think that we're in this moment of incredible threat to liberal democracy. And uh, we need to come together to, um, to, to save it and to rebuild it uh, for the future. The endlessly repeated little theme line that I try to run is that, you know, and, and you having been involved in politics, you know you've got to keep saying it and keep saying it and keep saying it if you want to, something you're saying to be heard by anyone, is that you cannot hope to get good public policy out of a bad or a truncated or a silenced debate. But we seem to live in an age when that's the modus operandi. Mm. Um, to mention one of the people you work for, uh, Kim Beasley was not like that at all. He actually mm. really did believe in debate mm. and he was remarkably strong in disciplining himself to never make it personal. Yep, he had a wonderful sense of um, respect, I think, for the institutions and respect for others. and. He communicated that he was a great, great guy to work for, partly for, for that reason as well. Um, he also, I, I share a little story that's kind of relevant to, um, I think many people in your audience are interested in the questions of faith and politics. I had this conversation with him when he was going to go off to speak to the Australian Christian Lobby. And I said to him, Kim, it'd be good for you to talk personally about your faith. You haven't done that much. I'd known personally from conversations with him that faith was very important. And he turned to me and he said, Tim, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died and then proceeded to quote the entire hymn, which was very strange, uh, in the middle of a sort of a Labour Party conference that's happening behind us. And then he said, you know, the reason why I have never talked about my faith in public is because I learned from my father's experience and his father's generation that when religion is used in politics, it can undermine people's faith in religion, that is, it can become a, a constraint on their personal faith. And he mentioned the example of Mike Willisey's father, Don Willisey, as an example, and there's a, there's a really interesting story there. But he said to me, it's the, the, wrong for me as someone in politics to create an obstacle for any Australian to come to faith. And so that's why I haven't, because I've never wanted to politicise faith. And I stood back from that and I thought, that's a, that's a remarkable way of seeing the relationship of faith and politics, actually for two reasons. One was because I said to him, Kim, I think you have a vastly exaggerated perception of how, how much influence a politician has on the way people think about faith. <laughs> but also it's a reflection of the, uh, just an incredible, his character, that he might see some political advantage perhaps using in talking to particular faith audiences. But the more important thing for him was he, he actually thought politics was less important than people's fundamental beliefs in, in, in questions of faith. And I thought that was a, that was a privilege to work for someone like that. Give us, give us an insight into what it's like working at a very, very high level as a 
very senior advisor and a speech writer to someone as busy uh, as, as, if you like, under the pump as a prime minister must be. In this case, in your case, Kevin Rudd. Yeah, well, I, um, I genuinely felt at the time and still feel it's an extraordinary privilege to work inside a prime minister's office because you, you're going to get a sense of how the system works. And actually from the inside, you have a lot more respect for the challenges that the whole as governing of a country, country involves um, and the hard work that goes in to, to make that, you know, the, the system work, the country work, etc. Kevin was quite a handful as a personality to work with, but the thing about that role as an advisor is you're there to support your boss, as you, you know well. And I had the privilege of working with three quite different personalities, Kim Beasley, Julia Gillard, Kevin Rudd. Um, but it was a, I, I mean, my take out from it, I think there's a lot of dysfunction in our politics yeah. and there's a lot of reasons why people have lost faith in politics. But I also feel coming out of that experience that there's something incredible that we should treasure about what we've built in having a democracy, a process to resolve our differences, to come to decisions, to move forward on issues. When you compare all of the other systems of government that we've had throughout time, this is a remarkable achievement. My worry, and partly what motivates my work now, is that there's a lot that's undermining the foundations of that system. Well, that's uh, you know terrifically important. I think there's a strange sense in which uh, I don't know whether you may want to recast this uh, in the way you respond to it. But you and I are conservative in the sense that we actually think the institutions that have been set up to serve our society, to look after its freedoms, to ensure we have the rule of law and the vote, are actually worth defending. And I would think that when say you were working with Kim Beasley to go back to a slightly earlier era, it was almost beyond comprehension that you would challenge those institutions. Mm -hmm. Now it seems in some circles, it's almost beyond comprehension that you try and defend them. The strange, well, I think part of the strange thing that's happening right now is the attacks on the system are coming from both the left and the right. And from my perspective, coming more from the other side of the political fence, I see a lot of those attacks particularly coming from the right, not so much in Australia, but you know, in the United States context. Um, I don't think, yeah, I, don't, I did not think that there would be a question that we, we should be you know, stripping away the basic capacity of the State Department to represent American interests overseas, for example, or that people would be, you know, you'd have a president who's publicly attacking the media as the enemy, enemy of the people. And when we talk about these institutions, we're talking about media, we're talking about politics, party representation, you know, the system of Congress, all of those institutions. And I think it's really disturbing to see the loss of trust in those, those institutions. I partly see that. I mean, I think you're right. You know, we have a lot of common ground in thinking about this. One of the reasons why I think it's important that the system works is because government is what often can deliver improvement in the lives of people, which is obviously less a conservative and more of a progressive perspective. But you need to have the institutions working. Partly what's breaking down now is if you don't have trust in those institutions, then your capacity to resolve problems, collective problems, um, you know, is taken away. Now, that's a great thing to start to talk about trust. Uh, and we know from the research, it's everywhere, right across the Western world, that trust in our institutions has broken down to truly frightening degrees. So if you go to Britain, uh, baby boomers had a high degree of trust in uh, major corporations. Younger people, almost no one trusts them. Uh, if you come to Australia, the ANU's work on trust in government and in politicians reveals that we're in uncharted waters. Uh, the level of trust in banks has, has, has absolutely plummeted. It really seems to me that we're missing something really important here. Without trust, a democracy can't work and freedoms and prosperity are placed at risk. Yeah, and the, the statistics on the trust figures, as you say, are, are really striking, really all throughout the, the Western world with a few exceptions in, in Northern Europe. Um, what that then creates, if you don't trust that you've got, your society's got institutions to resolve differences and to move forward, then you get tribalism and that's what's happening. People withdraw their support for the institution. They, they almost, they use the institutions around them 
for the purpose of their tribal warfare, one group against another. Yeah. That, that is what is happening. So it's a struggle for power. Yeah, everything becomes a struggle for power, yeah. And we've been looking at the, what is this sort of tribalism that's happening, that's sort of breaking down trust and creating, putting every, every issue is becoming an us versus them issue. What we've found is that the, the groups that are driving polarised debates are actually quite small at opposite ends. And I think this is one of the, 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 the challenges for the, the way in which we hear a lot of public debates. So when you talk about these attacks are coming from, um, you know, the, the left and they're sort of they're undermining institutions or they're, they're uh, making everything into a sort of tribal fight, you can also say that, you know, the, the similarly on the conservative side, what we call the devoted conservatives in the US, they also actually um, have a very strong victimhood story, um, as the left has a victimhood story. The problem with when it becomes us versus them and your two sides fighting each other, the, those two narratives basically reinforce each other. So if you to look at Donald Trump's tweets, for example, he's constantly, his story is, you know, I'm a victim. From a progressive's perspective, they look at him and say, well, you've got the Republicans, you've got all the power. From the perspective of a lot of people on the conservative side of politics in the United States, they actually think, think of cultural power more than political power. So they, who's got the airwaves, who kind of, who's, who's controlling Hollywood, who's controlling our video games. Who's, so they think through a different lens and they see all the power is on the left and it's the political correctness culture and so forth. So it's interesting, like actually you get a victimhood, a story of powerlessness on both ends. But the irony is that those two opposing groups, which are only 14% of the population, the really trenchant tribal types, they're actually dominating the conversation with this tribal warfare and it's leaving out the vast majority in the middle who don't really buy into either of the polarizing narratives. And a lot of the work that I've been doing is to try to elevate that story of what's happening in the middle. I think that's incredibly important because uh, uh, my view of Australia is that um, you've got a huge number of essentially decent civic-minded Australians who are watching these ugly hackneyed phrase, I know, but cultural wars going on, thinking, where do we fit into this? Where are we really going? And I think they're very uneasy as they look to globally. They get that there's a whole bunch of issues that affect us all, regardless of where you stand on the gender wars or where you live or you know, uh, the colour of your skin. There are a lot of issues confronting us that are blind to those things, and yet we're so busy fighting one another for power mm -hmm. internally, it often seems to be power over others mm -hmm. rather than the broad good of the Australian community that bubbles to the fore in the public debate as mainstream Australians see it. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot, there's a big difference between your, what we call them in the United States study that we've done, the exhausted majority. It's 67% of the population overall. Now, exhausted, most of those, yeah. exhausted, Unpack that. That's a really interesting concept. Exhausted. They've just had enough of the way of the, of the polarization and the division. Yeah. And 67%. The that, 67%. Two thirds. So two thirds in, in yeah. that. Now, you know, and you've got only on, on opposing sides, 8% and 6%, 14% of the population overall, who are the most tribal yeah. groups. Now, what, what's important to say about them is, they are a social phenomena because they essentially have a list of issues where they all see the issues in exactly the same way. And this is the point of our research. What we've been demonstrating is that if you look at people's underlying beliefs, rather than look at them through the lens of what's their uh, income level or what's their age or what's their gender or what's their racial background or what's their party identity, if you actually ask them more questions of belief and attachment and there's a whole bunch of social psychology behind that, then you, you can really unpack what's happening. We get the story of two extremes, but then the story of actually the majority of people see things both ways. They don't want to buy into a world where, you know, they walk down the street and they can look at somebody's color of their skin and they know who they're gonna vote for, or, the, or a world in which, you know, you've got this kind of hate narrative against refugees and against uh, immigrants. The majority of people are, you know, against both extremes of the debate that's dominating the world, but they're feeling powerless right now. And I think one of the really significant factors that's driving this is that the media environment, both in terms of the increasingly commercial media, um, but, but social media most of all, is incentivizing conflict. It's incentivizing difference. It, you know, you get rewarded among your tribe for saying the most extreme thing. And that's, 
a dynamic that particularly because now it's it's the digital world is sort of mediating most of our political conversation, that piece is, is really significant. And I don't know that we've come to grips with how much that threatens how democracy works. Because you've, you once had a, an environment where there were a lot of incentives to actually find common ground. Now you've got an, an environment where the strongest incentives are actually to polarise. You know, our, our work, we've talked to thousands and thousands of people in the United States, but also other countries as well. You get the same story that most people are not at one extreme of looking at the world's problems through systemic injustices or looking at the world's problems through a purely individualistic lens. So when you talk, for example, to, we have a group in, the, in our study in the United States called the Passive Liberals. They are people who, a group that tends to have a low sense of agency, don't feel that they can influence much, don't have a lot of money, just keeping their heads above water. But if they are pushed to take a position, they're fairly liberal in their dispute. That is sort of more towards progressive liberal values. Um, but that group, as an example, we had a guy that we interviewed, Jamal, guy in North Carolina, who is a postal worker. And he says, well, you know, I'm sick of being taken for granted because I'm black, that therefore I have a particular political view. He said, like, I know they say I'm African-American, but I've never been to Africa, so I don't know about that. And my story is about the hard work that I, of how I got to where I am. I'm really proud that I'm holding down a, a job that's secure and that gives me a career. I wish that I was, had worked harder when I was at school. Um, but my parents always said this to me, but I didn't do it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the story that he told is a typical story that you get from a lot of people in the exhausted majority set. It's a story of saying, it's a character question. It's like where they, where they see themselves moving forward in life is a lot to do with the choices that they have had to make. But they will also say, oh, well, yes, the prop, one of the problems in my state is this is the problem with my schools, or this is a problem. The reality is that this is what the exhausted majority story is, right? That there's a balance, that the systemic factors are there and individual factors. Questions of character are really important. Question of justice and systems. The frustration that I've had in you know, more recent years and being involved in politics is that we're polarizing these debates as if it's one or the other. Yeah. It's, it's absurd. It's, you know, in most debates and in most issues, take the immigration issue, you know, there is a balance between securing borders and being an open, welcoming and inclusive society. And you don't have to choose between these values, but these polarized debates are, are presenting it as if we have to make choices, binary choices, which are just false choices. Before we talk about the tribes you've identified in America, you've referred to a couple of them already, but before we talk about that, um, you know, the, the David Brookses of this world point powerfully to the age of narcissism emerging in the 60s uh, and the idea of the extraordinary rise of the autonomy of the individual. So you don't see yourself as part of a community so much as um, being the center of your own universe. The big me uh, and selfism are the sort of words used. How did we morph from uh, the idea that we're all individuals, 26 million Australians, according to that model, uh, all living autonomous lives to tribalism? What moved people from thinking it's all about me and I'll do my own individual thing to clubbing together to seek power over others and over other tribes in particular? What's how did that happen? How can we understand it? I mean, I, I think the common denominator in the rise of individualism and the kind of the, like where self-fulfillment takes precedence over everything else um, in people's lives is the, the loss of a commitment to the common good. Right. Uh, so what came, came out of the kind of the revolution of the 60s and 70s, which I think is, you know, I think it's social and economic as well, was a culture that was, yes, very me-centred me and that you know, you shift your focus away from the interest of your community. Now, always again, a balance needs needs to be uh, struck there. You don't want no individual freedom, liberty, self-actualization and all community equally. You don't want it to be all the other way around. And I think that what we saw was that swing. You lose your sense of common good, but then actually human beings, the fundamental insight about our psychology is that we're very groupish. Yes. You know, we naturally we naturally tribalize. We naturally tribalize. We naturally who's got my back? Who's with me? Who's on my side? Who's against me? And in an environment as we have now, where people are feeling more insecure, that need for group attachment is even greater. So you then get this sort of that this 
shift that individualism kind of creates a, a focus on on tribes on on this kind of you know us against them uh, story and in the meantime i think over that period of time that, that 50 years the sense of the common good the collective interest um, we've been losing and i think it's now acute because the speed with which social media has put yeah. us into these echo chambers yeah. when we're just not connecting with yeah. people with different views than us. I think regardless of where you stand on, uh, on the issues of faith today, I do think one of the things we inherited from the Judeo-Christian uh, faith system was the idea of the dignity and worth of each individual. So that idea of the importance of the individual, I think is uniquely almost Judeo-Christian. But as I've often tried to say, people, if you believe in the doctrine of the individual, um, if I'm important and I have dignity and worth, I have to acknowledge you do as well. Mm. Now, the great problem we've got now, uh, Jonathan Haidt's been talking about this. We bring our children up to believe many things, and we're trying to be helpful, but we're getting it wrong, to believe that somehow life is a battle between good people and bad people, whereas the more traditional view is actually we're all struggling with our own good and bad aspects and so i need to acknowledge that i'm not totally good and you're not totally bad mm. once you wash that out it seems to me that you get into a lot of trouble and that's partly where we're at now mm. yeah i mean i think it in a larger sense what what's the reasons why civilizations or um, countries fall apart it's more often actually the internal yeah. breakdown than it is the external threat. History tells us that. Yeah, and I think that we are tunnelling towards, we're tunnelling in that direction where the divisions within our societies are taking precedence over everything else and we are unable to resolve our differences. And talk to, for example, um, school principals who will tell you that the conflict they're now getting with parents they've never had before that they just can't, that parents are just not, not dealing with something that goes against their kids' interests, for example, now, or road rage incidents or any number of things, right up to the much more extreme expression of white nationalist terrorism that we've seen in the, in, in the United States. You know, these are expressions of profoundly polarised societies where we begin to see the other not as someone different with a point of view to offer that might be informative or might change me, but, but rather as the enemy. And there are some specific reasons why this is happening. So there's this phenomenon that social psychologists talk about called group polarisation. And it literally is an observable thing from many experiments that if you put like-minded people, people with similar point of view in a room, they will, you know, you leave them for a few hours talking about an issue, they will end up going to an extreme mm. uh, because people basically self-polarise. Right. Put people with different views in a room and they will find common ground. Yeah. What's, the, what's social media done to us? It's literally taken us out of spaces in which we have conversations with people with different yeah. points of view to put us in. And so you've got, that, this is happening at both ends. And I think from my point of view, you know, all my life, whether it's on issues of you know, economic policy, which has been an interest to me, issues of faith, um, social policy. I've learnt most by talking to people who've got different, different views. Different views, right? even when they, you found those views offensive? Sure. And yeah. disagreeable? Yeah, because yeah, yeah. You are, I always ask the question, so why do you hold that? What, is, what in your background or your life makes you, what's, what's the value that, that is attached to that, that belief? It might feel like a wrong belief to me, but I want to know what the, and you learn so much. I you mean, do. this is the journey of life. Like, yeah. it's kind of boring always yeah. being around people, you know, who have the same views. You end up just talking in circles. But that's exactly what social media does. And because you're talking in circles, it gets frustra frustrating. Then all the energy is yeah. around having the more extreme, the more yeah. strident yeah. pull-out voice, and you get all the retweets, etc. So you crank yourself up and up and up into a right. state of extraordinary outrage. Mm. Yes, it's, it's contempt. And uh, Arthur Brooks has written about this really well in his recent book, Love Your Enemies, that you know, we, we now, a kind of contempt has become the common currency of conversation about issues. And that's, yeah, there's, there's always been conflict in politics, of course, and there's always been occasional kind of moments of contempt. But now it's just immediately, I come across somebody who's got different view to me, you know, I have total derision for them. And I, that is incredibly corrosive. I mean, you, you just can't hold a, a democratic society together if 
contempt becomes the core way in which we uh, interact with each other. So I think that element is really profoundly dangerous. Now, now before we come to this extraordinary work you've done on perceptions, um, can you talk a little bit about the earlier work you did on, on the tribes? You've talked about the 67% exhausteds and the smaller groupings who seem to get all the airplay and who fight the the warfare that we hear about and see on our television sets that's exhausted the rest of us. Can you just work us through those tribes? Mm. So what we, we did with this study was a very big national sample across the United States, 8,000 people. We had social scientists from Yale University working on it. And what we we're trying to do was get beyond the story that the country is 50-50 divided on you know, all these issues, these polarizing issues, immigration, racism, feminism, police brutality. A lot yeah. of questions you can ask in the United States, you'll get these 50-50 answers. And so the dominant narrative has been that's what we are. But when we went and asked people's perspectives on more what's their fundamental values and worldview, what shapes who they feel they are, how do they feel about the future, etc. And we asked a lot of questions that were based on this sort of this, the, what we call core beliefs um, uh, uh, framework. We found that it's not a story of 50-50 at all. In fact, there's large majorities for a lot of sort of common sense propositions, but the debate's being driven by two extremes, 6% at one end, 8% at the other end. And they're dominating because they're kind of loud on social media. They're the activists, conservative yeah. activists, progressive activists, but the majority of people are not that. But the other thing that we found is, you know, there's, there's a group, there's a traditional liberal group, a traditional conservative group who are small c conservative in wanting to maintain institutions, concern with compromise, et cetera. And then you've got these middle groups who don't really have a political identity. And that's where we've done particular, I think, interesting work around there's one group called the politically disengaged, 26% of the population. It's the largest single group in the US. And they just don't define themselves politically. They're not left or right. They have different views on immigration to on uh, an issue like welfare to you know something like taxes. Um, but most of all, they're characterized by social, very low social trust. They just don't believe in the institutions. They don't believe in other people. They're alienated, they're lonely. Um, and they're very vulnerable to an us versus them kind of populist narrative because they don't feel very vested in their society. Um, and we have a couple of other groups, so no need to sort of go into to all of it, it's all online. But, but we're getting to the texture of what does the country look like now. You read that and you, you look at the, you know, we had a lot of one-on-one -on -one interviews as well. You stand back from it and then you say, okay, this is a much more nuanced picture than a 50-50 story. And it is possible to build strong majorities if you have a story of inclusion, a story of respect, a story that's based around uh, the things that we share in common, the more in common kind of message. And that's where the frustration, when you watch the, the way in which politics is playing out, the frustration I have is we actually know from deep research that most important things people have in common share similar aspirations for their future. Yes, there are differences. They're all differences that we can manage. But right now it feels like we can't do that. As, as I hear about these tribes, I can't help thinking uh, to myself, I wonder which one I fit into. Well, you can actually get an answer to that question. You have to sort of pretend that you're American because some of the questions are specific to US context. But you actually on the hiddentribes.us website, you can go there and you can, uh, it takes about eight minutes, you fill in the, a bunch of questions about your sort of worldview and core beliefs, and you can find out uh, which tribe you belong to. I think that's tremendous. <laughs> Are you going to do it for us in Australia at some stage? I would love to. Um, I mean, the, one of the challenges is that this sort of work depends on you know, significant philanthropic support. Australia doesn't have that kind of base of support. It's harder to get. But I would love to do it because I do think that um, just new ways of trying to unpack what's happening in your society are just so, so valuable at this moment of kind of disruption and, 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 and change. So, yeah, I would, I would love to. Well, there might be someone out there who's grabbed by the idea. But it would seem to me to be very Yeah, no, I think, I think something like this would be just very helpful to, um, you know, we, we need to, to tell a story of who we are as Australians, tell a bigger, inclusive story of us and our future that brings everybody in, that doesn't exclude anybody on the basis of, you know, whatever, background, history, identity, etc. Um, and to do that, we need to know who we are now. You know, and, and what are the what are the differences, and what are the, the 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 points of fracture and the points of commonality, and especially it's the points of commonality. So, uh, yeah, we've, we're we're doing this in a bunch of other countries: United Kingdom, France, and Germany. Uh, and it would be great to be able to do that uh, here at some point in the future too. Yeah. So, 
that takes us into the area of perceptions, reality versus um, perceptions. You've done some later work that's really profoundly interesting and quite disturbing about the way in which even highly educated people at one end of the spectrum, say a, an enclave of Democrats, versus a, a highly educated uh, enclave of Republicans in another area, can so completely and seriously misunderstand one another that they, there's no common ground at all. Even though people in the middle, as you say, have a, a lot of common ground, as you'd expect in any civil society. Hmm. Yeah, we were asking this question, so, our assumption is that what's driving tribalism in part is that we just don't, we don't actually understand the other, the point of view of the other side. And we wanted to test, okay, do you, can we empirically test? What do we take, what Republicans think about, let's say an issue like immigration, the role of Muslims, and what they think Democrats think about the patriotism of the country. And we ask them their beliefs, and then we ask the Democrats, what do you think their beliefs are? And we did the, the same the other way around. What we found was that on both sides, they're wildly exaggerating the proportion of people with extreme views. So for example, uh, half of Republicans think that Democrats um, think that most police are bad people. Well, actually the number's only 15%. It's really? a third of what they think. Mm. Likewise, um, we asked Democrats, you know, w w how many Republicans do you think um, don't believe that a Muslim could ever be a good American? Uh, so it's a question about, you know, how, how much racial prejudice do they hold? Well, they say, oh, well, you know, two thirds of Republicans. Were like that. Well, the answer is one third, it's less than one third. So we found that the, the more extreme views, of course, yes, there are extreme views on both sides, but they're much, much smaller. Typically, we are exaggerating by a factor of two to three times the actual number on both sides. Now, yes, when you go then deeper into the research, what's driving that? We looked at media habits yeah. and we looked at education levels and a variety of other things. Um, and what we found was in media habits, um, it's, it's a lot of exposure to media doesn't actually make you better informed about the views of people on the other side of the fence. In fact, the best thing for you to do is to basically have no media exposure, which is a terrible reflection. Literally, you know, for almost every form of media other than network news, nightly network news, traditional TV news, um, people's exposure is the more exposed they are to media, the more they misjudge the other side. Mainstream media or social media? Mainstream and social media, because in the United States context, is a lot of it is partisan media, whether it's the yeah. Fox world or the MSNBC right. world. Um, and, but then there, is, there are some good insights. If you're a Democrat, then you should listen to religious um, broadcasting, religious news services, um, or conservative talk radio, and that'll help you to understand the views of the other side. Um, if you're a conservative, then it's exposure to things like NPR, uh, MSNBC, and so forth, that will, give you, will help you to better understand. But people don't have a balanced media yeah. diet anymore. So that's one mm -hmm. part of it. The other piece that we, we did was looked at education levels. And we found this very strange outcome that was showing the opposite relationship between education and understanding other people than what you'd expect. That is, the Democrat who best understands the values of the average Republican hasn't finished high school. And at every level of education, as you get more educated, a Democrat uh, is, has, a, has a bigger perception gap, a bigger misunderstanding. And strangely, the only group of Democrats, overall Republicans are generally have a bigger perception gap, misunderstand more. But when you get to a, post, a Democrat with a postgrad degree, they're actually the worst of all groups in their misperception. They're, they have a caricatured, caricatured view of the average Republican. And there's obviously something wrong if our education higher levels of education are creating an increase in the level of misunderstanding of the views of people on the other side. So I think that this is an attempt to sort of try to get deeper to understand what's driving. Because if you, if you don't understand the views of the other side, if you have this caricature view, if you think that every Republican is a sort of frothing at the mouth, sort of racist, etc., then you will not be prepared to make any compromises and you will fight to the death against the other side. And unfortunately, on both ends, if you look at you know, your commentary on social media, you can see it's this sort of view that the most extreme view that you hear from people on the other side is the norm. And you know, I, I've reflected on this a lot in my personal life and realized that very often, it's an easy thing in psychology, you think of the people who've criticized you or your side and you, you hear an extreme view and you think, oh, they all think like that. But whenever I've had personal experience, 
of the other side, the group, I've realised that, no, it's not true at all. This is a point Neil Ferguson makes. If you're going to hate someone and take them down, you must not meet them. You must not develop any empathy. Because if you meet somebody and have to look them in the eye and talk, you actually realise they're a fellow human being. Mm. And they know when you're as bad as you thought. And you're not as good as you thought. So, you know, we've got this problem, as I understand it, with social media dominance that, you know, it's so easy to set yourself up to only get one line of thinking. And I think it's 40% of Americans now get no, no mainstream news whatsoever. It's all social media. And the bad news, the fake news, travels much faster than accurate news. Yeah, and it's optimised to do that, exactly. Yeah. So I this think tricky this business of algorithms, we're all being manipulated. Right. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. And, you know, Sean Parker, one of the founders of Facebook, and he says this, he says, this is a system which was built to exploit the vulnerabilities of yeah. human psychology. We have never had an instrument No, like we haven't. That. This and, is a dangerous new era uh, we're in. And I think this is the, you know, mm. why have we entered this period in the last few years of what feels, feels like chaotic disruption and... A kind of because it's accelerating very, it's very, accelerating very rapidly, extremely fast. And, you know, yeah. I, you, we could think of fifteen countries yeah. where insurgent um, nationalist populism poses a fundamental threat to people's rights and to, to democracy that just wasn't the case even ten years ago. And they're very different countries and very different systems. Yeah. Of course, my work is across different. So in every country, you have a conversation where people are saying, "Well, this is all about Brexit," or "This is all about." The refugees who came here in Germany, or in America, this is all about Trump. But it's like when when you stand back from it, and say no, no, no. Very similar forces are at work everywhere. And what's the one factor that has been most dramatic? I mean, yes, financial crisis and there's, yeah. there's economic mm. factors, but it's social media. It's social media. It's transformed our information yeah. environment yeah. and the way that yeah. we connect to each other. Yeah. That's that's profound. I don't know yeah. that there's any in history yeah. that there's anything that's mm. so quickly yep. sort of entered into the way in which. Well, only the printing presses is the only analogy you can yeah. think of. Five hundred years ago, and it proved to be more disruptive and created more mayhem and unpleasantness mm. than was expected at the time. Ultimately, it proved to be a good thing. Mm. But this one's got it's such a wild ride. We don't know where it's going to land. Which brings me back to a couple of the other things we need to explore. By the way, it's music to my ears in one way to have confirmed something that I had drummed into me by wise old parliamentarians when I first entered the place. Never take your constituents for fools. Some of the people with the most limited education will be the people who have time to reflect, time to think, they listen to the news, they digest, and they come to profoundly sensible positions, often academics. There were people telling me that when I entered the parliament in 1989. They were absolutely right. Strike one for the common sense of mainstream Australians, and I believe that very strongly. But it raises a huge question. We spend a fortune, taxpayers in this country, on our education systems. I'm starting to think they're failing us abysmally. They're not equipping young people to think and to hear other people uh, and to set themselves up to learn how to negotiate their way forward on a shared humanity basis. Rather, they seem to be exacerbating the problem of narrowness and tribalism. Mm. Well, I think one of the challenges that we now need to think of in the education system is actually about it's, it's the sort of social experience or social connection that people have with each other and with people on, on you know, the other side of an argument, uh, that that is now that is a fundamental element of, of civics, in a sense, of, of what you need in a democracy. I think that we have for a long time thought, well, there are intermediating institutions in society that are teaching people those values and giving them those mm. experiences. But there's just there's fewer and fewer of them now. There's fewer uh, organisations that people belong to that give them that experience. So in the absence of that, and if social media is the only way in which people um, you know, connect with each other, then this has to become part of our education system because where else in the formation process uh, is that is that going to take place? Um, you know, it should happen in families, obviously, and for many people, yes. But you know, families also are being tribalized in, in, in a similar way to all other forces in society. So I think that yes, this is a it's it's one of the challenges that we um, you know have to address with a sense of urgency. Education has got to be part of the solution, but it is true at least from our research that that in in you know many ways it's contributing to to the problem. You made a reference to civility. Let's pursue that for a moment. What is civility? It means that even when you disagree, 
you put aside personal feelings of anger, of disgust, of contempt in the interest of finding a good way, a better way forward, a negotiated outcome. Yeah, I think that the there is a difference between kind of talking about niceness yes. or politeness yeah. or, you know, the kumbaya sort of mm. just get people together and pretend yeah. there are no differences or disagreements. Mm. Uh, I don't think that is the way forward at all. No, neither do it's I. About the navig- it's about navigating difference. Yeah. And so I, this is where I think Jonathan Haidt, who you recently yeah. had on, it was a great conversation. You know, Haidt's work is really helpful in giving us a way to have conversations yep. about the causes of difference. We've yep. used his research, used his methodology in our national opinion polling. It's very helpful and very predictive. We, we are really getting to the nub of why there are differences in views on immigration, for example. What we find is that actually there is common ground on the fundamentals of a good immigration policy, which is for 75-80% of people there's actually agreement that you need to manage borders, have proper systems, have fairness and proportionality in how you govern a system, and also when there are people fleeing, uh, escaping war and persecution, you should have an open door and you should be inclusive for um, immigrants who come into your um, community, into your society. Now the strange thing is that in American politics, they're not actually being, people aren't being offered that story of they're being offered to opposing binary stories. But it's actually the moral foundations, the language of being able to talk about, okay, these are people who value authority, tradition, loyalty to a group, the notion of purity and sanctity. Uh, on the liberal side, it's care, it's protection, it's sort of fairness in terms of equality. The moral this power. You, that it's a moral, exactly. Talks about. And, and actually, what our research is showing is that. Both sides actually have a mix of those things. Maybe, you know, he makes this argument that conservatives actually have a broader sort of moral um, um, sort of uh, tastes, Mm. um, particularly because they have care and protection, but they have this sort of commitment to loyalty in the group that is not so strong on the liberal side. But anyway, it's a very, that is a very helpful way of being able to talk about uh, differences. And this is what we're trying to do in our, our research is not to, uh, avoid the questions of difference, but to actually almost elevate them to make the point differences exist in people's values and orientation to the world. That doesn't make it impossible for us to come to agreement. And in fact, on most issues, if you can have a better process yeah. for coming to having a policy conversation um, and coming to uh, an outcome, it can work. Mm. What, what I worry about right now is I think that this loss of faith in our system, in, in democracy, people, and they're just hearing conflict all the time, and cynicism is just the easiest and, and you know, expression for if you're a reporter, a journalist, or a politician. And so people are feeling like, oh, no, we can't, we can't resolve these things, can we? It's just too hard. No, it's just like there's got to be a choice this way or that way. There's no common ground. And it's becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy and the incentives that we're giving to people in political life is to adopt the most trenchant position. You get rewarded for that on both sides. So we risk undoing our own democracy because of this, the way the system is now working. But in reality, it's quite doable. And that's what motivates, you know, Morin Commons work. It's, it's, we have to rebuild a democracy for the 21st century. We we absolutely do for our children's sake. I actually am all in favour of a full throttle debate. We want people to be passionate about their beliefs and about their perspectives. The problem with it is that once it becomes personal, you can't get anywhere. And that's being reflected in our parliaments. As through social media, we've become ever more personal because we don't look people in the eye. It's very easy to be you know, a crude cultural warrior with the anonymity of a keyboard when you're not looking another person in the eye as you and I are doing now. That flows right through everything. So we're not saying there shouldn't be a vigorous, full-blooded, passionate debate. What we need to do, though, is to learn to respect the fact that we share humanity with one another and that we actually all do believe there are things that are right and wrong. Yeah, we need to create and elevate the culture of bridge builders, people who are willing to cross the lines of division, whatever those lines of division are. You know, I reflect on how fascinating it was in those later years of um, Gough Whitlam and Malcolm Fraser's life that they actually sort of became good friends. Um, And that was a 
a wonderful end to what had been a you know 30 year period of of incredible fractiousness around that episode in Australian democracy. Um, but we need to have that ethic of bridge building as that's what leadership is about. We need creative leaders of institutions from politics, but also in the nonprofit world, in, in activism, in civil society, in educational institutions, health institutions, et cetera, that get the fact that building bridges across these lines of division is essential to hold our society together. We can't make the assumption that we're simply going to hold together as we have, I think, for a long time, for many generations. This is the work of society building. And I think it is an absolutely central calling for this generation to be bridge builders because we're at risk of exaggerating the fractures that, that exist among us and, and, and as a result, causing a great fracture. So let's tease that out again a little bit more on what happens in our parliaments. Uh, you know, one of the things that's missed, of course, is that our representatives are people. They're just like us. When they display big me tendencies and people in the community complain about them seeing more interested in themselves and in their tribe than the good of the nation, we're actually seeing the prevailing ethos of our own age on display and we don't like it. We need to acknowledge that big meism, that selfism and tribalism are playing out very badly in our politics. It says something about how we need to think about ourselves in the community and the demos, I think. Mm. So how do we engage Australians who are by and large, I think, are, are committed to the success of the nation, freedom and prosperity for their children, that we all, I mean, let's be frank about this, we all have to do our bit. Mm. So I think we have to make this um, a, a cause for um, this period of time. I think that this is part of what the Moran Commons work is to get us to focus on, look, there are many, there are many challenges that we're facing as societies and there's many different voices. But the central thing is if we can't resolve differences amongst us, if we can't come together on the big challenges, then we can't make progress on any of the big challenges. So how do we do that? I think that the we need to get ordinary people to join political parties again, not just the crazy activists, not, not just the people who sort of represent the greatest extremes. Now, of course, it's, they're not all crazy activists, but what you're seeing is the, the erosion of membership of ordinary people who don't do it as a career thing. Uh, and that's a problem because, you know, the, the narrower your sort of your gene pool becomes, the narrower your base, the more that political parties get pulled towards extremes. So that's one piece of it. I think we need to think really hard about within our parties, how we uh, advance, how we um, look for the right qualities of leadership and don't just look for the loudest voice and the most vigorous tribal warrior. Because there's a bunch of, because of the social media thing we were discussing, we've got this problem where we, we are elevating the wrong conduct. And it is about the incentive structures. The economist in me sort of uh, makes, make, I always look at this, you know, look for that. Is what's, what gets advances you within your party? What gets you noticed? Well, you know, if it's being the most, um, the, the loudest voice, then we are not going to get good leadership. So I think that we need to think about that in the context of internally within parties. And then we also need to think in the parliamentary processes, how you also creating opportunity for connection across the, the, um, the, the, the divisions of party lines. Because you know, the Australian Parliament actually has a great, as you know well, has a great history of fantastic work done behind the scenes that where party is not the issue at all, where there's sort of genuine work across the lines. But there's less of that happening and we're going to get less and less as the social media environment, the environment of, of polarisation and tribalism continues to pull us apart. Civic society is one surely where people are involved in organisations, mm -hmm. the sporting club, the volunteer bushfire brigade, the church, mm -hmm. um, the service clubs. All of those organisations are suffering a real problem now in attracting membership. What is it about our age that stops us belonging? Because if we want people involved in the political process, we need a new willingness to engage. Mm -hmm. I mean, many of the best people of all out there in middle Australia 
to reform the political system, the ones most able to do so, are not joining things. Mm. We've got to break that cycle of disinterest and even cynicism. Mm. Yeah, I, well, I think that loss of neighbourly connection, of, of knowing your neighbours, of being connected to other, others in your community, of belonging to organisations, um, it's, a, it's a big issue because you know, those, those institutions are the glue that helps to hold our society together. Partly, they're the means by which we have experiences with the people who don't belong to our tribe, who, where we meet people not in the context of a, just a transaction where I'm getting something out of you, you're getting something out of me, but we're actually involved in a, in a common endeavour together. So, you know, there are some actually very practical things that you can do to strengthen this part of civil society. Public liability insurance reform that actually allows the organisations to exist, not go bankrupt, etc. Like, some of these things are just really practical, and, but having an agenda to strengthen those civic institutions, I think, is, is really important. Schools are a really important institution um, in our society because they are one place where parents of quite different backgrounds come together, with, particularly with primary school age kids, um, and they are interested in the best thing for their kids. They have a common interest together. So we should think about how we strengthen the role that schools play in local communities. Faith, as you said, I think it is, is very important now. Faith can be a means of polarisation. We're seeing that in the United States a lot. But if you look across Europe, when you had the big um, incoming uh, uh, numbers of refugees back in 2015, 2016, what were the, where were the communities that opened up their doors to that, that huge wave of people coming in? It's churches all across Europe, it's true. Like the churches do play this critical role in communities. And people sometimes say to us, uh, you know, when we're, we're looking at polarisation as it's playing out in local communities, they say, you know, there's not much left now. This is schools and there's churches and there's police. Uh, and so churches have a unique place, the faith communities have a unique place in uh, at this very localised level. So I think that it's an interesting thing to think about, you know, that there's a whole conversation going on about the role of religion or the role of the church, you know, nationally. But actually, the thing that really matters to most people's lives is what's happening in churches, in those communities. I come back here, you know, it's 10 years since I left Australia. I grew up in Ryde, John Howard's um, uh, electorate. And 10 years ago, there's a, um, uh, at least 20 years ago, there's a church that started there and I started attending, I lived there, the C3 church, right? Now, 1,000 people, 130 different nationalities, actively involved in serving its community. It strengthens the social fabric. It's deeply respected, um, you know, and it's a big movement. It's a big number of people. So it's not that the whole, these, all of the stories that you hear are negative stories or stories of decline. There are stories of new life springing up in different places of community connections being built. But I think that this is, it's a big piece of our work to hold our societies together because you need to think about how we make the glue sticky again in all kinds of different ways. And if we don't, then we face this period of growing loneliness and fracturing and fragmentation and, and division. Tim, I can't think of a better note to end on than that appeal. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, more in common uh, for listeners who are interested. This sounds like incredibly valuable work. The more we can understand about ourselves, the more likely we are able, I think, to be able to take corrective action, be engaged in constructive ways. We all care about our freedom. We all care about our kids. We want to make sure Australia is strong into the future. Thanks very much. Thanks, John. You've been listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.